we get the joy of turning our attention to God's word. So if you have a Bible with you, please turn to the book of Numbers, chapter 13. Numbers is the fourth book in the Old Testament. So from the beginning, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Numbers chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible with you, please feel free to borrow one in these black chair pockets or their stacks at the end of the side aisles. And if you don't own a Bible, please feel free to keep that one. We'll get to that in just a second. Now, every summer, my wife Kim and I take our boys back to the States to visit their grandparents, to visit family. And so their grandparents, who are not normally having small humans running around their house, have to either pull from storage or get from somewhere else toys and games and um, books that will occupy our four- and two-year-old. And so last summer, Kim's mom, from a friend, borrowed one of these play kitchens. Have you seen these play kitchens? They're about this tall, and they've got a refrigerator and an oven and a stovetop. And the stovetop actually was supposed to light up and make a sound like water is boiling whenever you set the kettle on top of it. But, you know, we got it all out, set the kettle, nothing. So I thought, no problem. This has probably been in someone's basement for a while. Batteries are dead. Replace the batteries. Still no sound of boiling water. So I thought, well... No worries, I I have an engineering degree that I never get to use in my current vocation, and so I'm just going to take this thing apart, and I'm just going to find the problem. And so I went to the garage and got some tools and, you know, disassembled the play kitchen and could not find anything wrong. I thought maybe, maybe it just, something was loose, and now it's tight, so I just tightened it back up, put it together, and it's still, still no sound of boiling water. And then I discovered on the back of the play kitchen a power switch. It was just off. You can't fix something until you know what the real problem is. And I think we try to do this all the time with prayer. Because we have a problem with prayer. At least I have a problem with prayer. Which is, the problem is, I don't pray. Hours go by, and I I don't engage with God, right? Uh, Problems, crises erupt in my life, and I'm halfway through my response to them before I even think to pray. I, I worry and I fret for my friends, but I don't pray for them. And it's easy to think that the problem with prayer is that we just don't have enough time, or we just need to get more organized, or we just need more teaching, we need more tips. But all of that is good, but the real problem with prayer is almost always deeper. And so our passage today, I I hope, is going to help us get under why we don't pray, and actually help us to pray like we should. So we're in a series of sermons on prayer, and today we're going to talk about a specific kind of prayer, prayer for others. Prayer where we we bring the needs of other people to God to see him work in their life. It's called intercessory prayer because we intercede. We we go between the people we care about and the God who can do something for them. And this passage in Numbers 13 is one of the classic pictures of intercession in the Bible. So let me give you some context for what we're going to read. God's people are in transit. Hundreds of years before this, God gave a promise to a man named Abraham that he would give his descendants, his people, a land of their own, the promised land. God said in Genesis 15 to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourning in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, slaves, really, and they'll be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. So God told Abraham that his descendants would go to a foreign land, they'd become slaves there for 400 years, and then he would bring them out and bring them back 
to the promised land. And when we get to Numbers 13, the promise is almost entirely fulfilled. God's people did go to a foreign land. They went to Egypt. They did become slaves. They were there for 400 years. God did miraculously bring them out of slavery, carried them through the wilderness, and now they're on the border of the promised land, ready, so it seems, to enter their inheritance. And they've sent 12 spies into the land, uh, a leader for each of the 12 tribes of Israel to scope it out, to see what the land is like, what's growing there, what kind of people there are, what the cities are like. And the 12 spies went out, and now they're on their way back to bring their report. So let's pick up the story in Numbers chapter 13, verse 25, and this will be on the screen behind me as well. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told them, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there, giants. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negeb. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb, Caleb was one of the twelve spies, Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night, and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we pass through to spite out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. And do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. We're going to eat them up. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you, Moses, a nation greater and mightier than they. But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of the land. 
They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. If you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give to them that he has killed them in the wilderness. And now, please, let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the children to the third and the fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you've forgiven the people from Egypt until now. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. But truly, as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despised me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. Now, since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way to the Red Sea. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we are so thankful, thankful that we have your word, thankful that you have spoken, you've given us this book, you speaking to us about yourself and about Jesus. And we pray, Father, that you would would speak this morning, that you would open our eyes and open our ears and help us to hear what you want to say. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we're going to see in Numbers 13 and 14 the need for prayer, the urgency of prayer, the greatness of prayer, and the ultimate prayer. And so you have an outline on the back of your bulletin if you want to make use of that. First, the need for prayer, our unbelief. So the spies come back with a divided report, right? Ten spies bring what you might call the majority report, and two spies bring the minority report. And you can see the majority report beginning in chapter 13, verse 27. We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. So the majority report is the land seems good, but the people are huge and many and strong. The minority report is brought by Caleb and Joshua. This is what Caleb says in verse 30. Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. The majority report comes back in verse 31. We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. And the nation of Israel, right, this is playing out in front of the whole nation of Israel. They heed the majority report. You can see in in verse 1 of chapter 14, then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. They were so overcome with fear, 
They were so afraid that they were going to go into the land and just die there. They wanted to go back to Egypt where they were slaves. Better to be slaves than killed, they thought. So Joshua and Caleb, they tear their clothes and they plead with them in chapter 14, verse 7. They say, the land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people. And the nation is so distraught that they try to organize a stoning just to silence Caleb and Joshua. They don't want to hear it. They just want to go. So what distinguishes these two reports? In a word... Belief. Faith. God says as much in chapter 14, verse 11. He says, How long will this people despise me, and how long will they not believe in me, in spite of all the signs I have done among them? The the ten spies were totally overwhelmed by what they saw with their eyes. They were totally overwhelmed by these, these tall people and these strong cities. They were overwhelmed by what they knew through seeing. But Joshua and Caleb, they saw the same people. They saw the same cities, but they were confident in what they knew without seeing. They knew that God was with them. He he had brought them all the way. They knew that God was for them. They knew that God had promised to give them the land. Nothing they saw could change what they knew without seeing. One of the words the Bible uses to describe the way we relate to whatever is the greatest reality in our life is fear. The book of Proverbs tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that doesn't mean that that what it means to be wise is to sort of go through life kind of cringing, watching for lightning to strike, that you're constantly afraid of God. It's not that kind of fear. The fear of the Lord means that, that God is the greatest reality in your life, that that everything you do is shaped by God's reality, by his weight. That when you fear the Lord, you trust his truth, and you obey his commandments, and you love what he loves. Fear is a, it's a negative word to us, but the fear of the, of the Lord is the only fear that makes you flourish. It gives you peace and confidence and wisdom. It, it frees you from every other fear. Because everyone fears something. And if you don't fear God, whom you can't see, you will fear something you can see. Something will loom largest in your life. You'll fear financial insecurity, and so you will make yourself sick with worry, and you'll overwork. Or you'll fear your kids rebelling, your kids leaving you behind, and so you'll you'll make your life all about trying to give them everything they want, everything they need, everything to make them happy. You'll... You'll fear losing a relationship, so you'll abandon principles and convictions and goals that you have in order to hold on to the relationship. If you don't fear God most, life won't work for you. Not for long, anyway. The fear of God makes us flourish, and every other fear eats us alive, just like the people in this passage, right? They were, they were just consumed with fear of the people of the land to the point that they absolutely rebelled against God and turned their heel on him. They were crippled by their fear. And they thought their problem was their circumstances. They thought, our problem is the people are too big. The problem is the cities are too strong. But Joshua and Caleb were in the same circumstances, but their response was totally different. It was confidence. It was trust. It was eagerness to go. 
one of the reasons we don't pray is we don't see how like these people we are. We think our problem is our circumstances. We don't have enough money. Our boss is unreasonable. Our spouse is unaffectionate. Our kids are out of control. The pain is unrelenting. We think if we could just fix our circumstances, we could fix our life. But the problem is deeper because our circumstances are just the opportunity we have to see what we're actually trusting, what we're actually fearing. So when the performance review isn't great, when your health breaks down, when things look like they're about to be just too hard to go through, we'll respond either with patience and trust and peace, or we'll respond with anxiety and anger and despair, like these people. And that will show us whether we're fearing the Lord, whether God is the greatest reality in our life, whether we're more aware of his goodness and his power and his promises than we are of the things that we can see. And if God isn't the greatest reality to you in this circumstance, whatever it is you're going through, then even when the circumstances change, the next thing is going to get you. Because you'll still be trusting in what you can see instead of fearing the Lord. So what is the only thing that will actually bring peace and joy and rest to our lives is having our hearts changed to fear God most. So what's what's gripping you this morning? What can you not get out of your mind? What is it that is making you lose sleep or lose your appetite? Whatever that is, it could be that God has brought it into your life for this purpose, that you would learn to pray. That you would see how you're responding to your circumstances, that what you're fearing is not God. You would see your need for heart change and you would come to him. If we think our problem is mainly our circumstances, we're just going to work to fix them. But once we can see that what's really not working in our lives is deeper, that our faith is the problem, and we can do nothing to fix it, then we will see our need to pray. So we've seen the need for prayer. Secondly, the urgency of prayer, which is that God justly punishes unbelief. How does God respond to the people's refusal to believe his promises? We've already seen it. Look in verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I've done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. God God is angry, and his anger is just. He's given the people every reason to trust him. In fact, if you follow the story of the Exodus to this point, God's relationship with his people is overwhelmingly characterized by patience with their unbelief. So, So God rescues them out of Egypt, right? They come out with these great possessions and they come to the sea and behind them they see Pharaoh's army chasing them after. And they've just been rescued once, but now they're in danger again. And so immediately they say, we're going to die. This is terrible. Why did we ever come out here? And then God opens the sea and they walk right through and he delivers them from their enemies. Then they get to the other side and almost immediately they say, but there's no good water here. What are we going to drink? And then God turns bitter water sweet and provides for them. And then, and then they go on, they say, there's no food here. What are we going to eat? And then God sends bread from heaven. Just time and again, the people don't believe that God is going to come through and then God graciously takes care of them. He's been so patient, but he is not infinitely so. He's also just, and at some point his justice is so provoked by the people's unbelief that he has to act. 
The more valuable something is, the more consequential is its mistreatment. So if you misuse money, if you cheat on your expense report at work, and you're found out, you get fired, right? But if you, if you abuse an animal, which is more important than money, you'll probably be prosecuted and fined. And if you, if you abuse a child, you will go to jail, right? The more important something is, the more valuable it is, the more serious are the consequences of its mistreatment. And the most valuable reality in the universe is the glory of God, is his fame and goodness and reputation. And his own people were saying, God is not strong enough to bring us into this land. The people are too big. And they were even saying, this is amazing, chapter 14, verse 3, they were saying, why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? They were saying, God is doing this on purpose. This is a trap. He's bringing us into the land just to be killed. God is not good. He is not going to take care of us. So the people are, are saying that God is not strong, that he's not good, and God doesn't fly off the handle, but he assigns a punishment that is just and devastating. He says, okay, we're done. This people is not going to come into the land. I'm going to end this nation, and I'm going to start over with Moses, and maybe Moses' family will do what I say. So does your view of God have room for this kind of anger? Now, there's one misrepresentation of God that says that God is always angry, that he's just kind of glowering over humanity, looking for an opportunity to smite. And that is not the picture of God we have in the Bible. But there's another misrepresentation of God that's just, he's just soft and kind, and he's, he never gets angry. He just wants everybody to have a good time. And that picture of God is not true either. God is just, and he does not bear with unbelief forever. Now, I want to be clear here. If you've trusted in Jesus for your forgiveness, for your hope of eternal life, if your life is being transformed by his grace, you don't need to be afraid. Jesus has taken your judgment, okay? Paul says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You don't need to be afraid of his, ju- of his judgment, pardon me, but you need to see how serious unbelief is. And we need to consider how urgently We ought to be praying for the people in our life because there are people in your life who haven't trusted Jesus. They don't know God. Or there are people in your life that that say that they know God, but their life tells a different story. They're, They're living on purpose in a way that's totally contrary to how God has called them to live. And they're in danger. They're in danger of God's judgment. So do you pray for them? Do you pray urgently? And if you don't, is it because that you don't actually believe in God's judgment? You don't actually believe a day will come when there will be consequences for the way that they live that will be just and right, but devastating. Until we deeply understand God's justice, we won't pray with the urgency we ought. But when we see how much and how urgently we need to pray, then we can see the greatness of prayer. And the greatness of prayer is that God answers it. So God has appeared before the whole nation. He said, I'm going to wipe this people out. They have, they have just disbelieved my promises for too long. And, and Moses, Moses so boldly, courageously, so full of love, pushes back. Right? He says, look at verse 19. He says, please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love. And then verse 20, and the Lord says, I have pardoned 
according to your word. God, God was ready to destroy the nation. Moses asked him to forgive, and he did. Just like that. The greatness of prayer is that God answers it. Now, there's, there's a mystery here, right? Did, what did Moses really do? Did he give God some information he hadn't had before? No, God knows everything. Did he point out to God that he was making a mistake, that actually his plan was not very good, he should make a different plan? No, God never makes mistakes. God never sins. In, in fact, what happens is what God has always promised. He promised that people would have the land, and the, the result of, God's, of Moses' prayer is that they do. And yet, somehow, Moses' prayer changed things. Right? God was going to execute justice, and then he didn't. Because Moses prayed. We're slow to believe this, and that's part of why we don't pray. So, in the Wendell family, we've had a very minor health issue recently with our, oldest, our older son, Joshua. So, we noticed that Joshua was, like, seemed to be tired all the time. So, we took him to his pediatrician. She ran a blood test and then a second blood test that seemed to confirm that his kidneys weren't functioning quite the way that they should. And so, she ordered a urine test. Joshua thought peeing in a cup was hilarious. And an ultrasound and another blood test. And so, and she prepared us for the possibility that, like, depending on how these tests come out, you might very quickly need to be going to Miami to see a, you know, children's nephrologist, a kidney specialist. And so we brought this to our community group, and we say, this, this is kind of a big deal. We don't know what's happening, but we would love for you to pray. And they did. They prayed for us. And since they prayed for us, every test result has been clear. And so Joshua doesn't need another test for a year. And it's, it's easy to think in that circumstance, like, oh, what a relief. You know, there was never anything wrong in the first place. I'm just so glad. But that just shows how little we believe in the greatness of prayer. Because it's at least as likely that God healed him in response to our community group praying. Now, what's true of this prayer that God answered? What, to what does Moses appeal? The essential prayer here that Moses prays is, God, be who you are. And you can see kind of three facets of that. And the first one is he he prays that God would be who he wants to be known to be. So if you look at verse 15, Moses said, Now if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, It is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give to them that he's killed them in the wilderness. So Moses knows that part of what God is doing in bringing the people into the land is he's showing his power. He's showing his greatness. He is the God who, who delivers his own people from the superpower of the day, brings them right out from under Pharaoh, brings them into a land, and plants them. He's showing his greatness. And, and Moses says, if the nations hear what, this ha- what has happened here, they'll say, maybe God wasn't so great. I mean, he just he couldn't get the job done, could he? So he appeals to what he knows, that, that God wants to establish a name for himself so the nations will know him as well. And secondly, Moses prays that God would be who he's promised to be. So verse 17, Moses says, And now please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. And that's, those are God's own words. So Moses quotes God to God and says, God, you have promised, you have promised to be slow to anger. Not never angry, but slow to anger, abounding in love. You've promised to be a God who's compassionate and merciful, a God who forgives. You've said that you are. God, be 
who you are, be who you've said to be. And finally, he, he asked that God would prove that he be who he's proven to be. So verse 19, Moses says, Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you've forgiven this people from Egypt until now. He says, every time, God, every time you've forgiven, you are forgiving God. Forgive again. So Moses knows what God is like. He appeals to who God is. Not, he doesn't appeal to the, what the people deserve. He doesn't say, God, the people haven't been that bad. Give them another chance. They'll, get, they'll make this better. He doesn't appeal to what they deserve. He appeals to who God is. And God is pleased. And God answers. God forgives. And we can pray like this too because God hasn't changed. So when we come to God in prayer, we should come thinking of who God is, who we know him to be. We know that God, that God is patient, that he loves to forgive, he loves, he loves to rescue. And so when we pray for our kids and for our friends who don't know Jesus, we can come pray confident that God loves, he loves to make dead things come alive. He loves to make people new. And we know that, we know that God is great in power, that his desire is to restore what has been wrecked by the fall. And so we can bring to him the needs of our, pe- our friends who need healing because we know that that's the kind of God he is. He's a God who heals. And we know that God is, is wise, that he loves to give wisdom and guidance. And so when we're praying for friends who, who need to make a big decision, we can come confident that God gives generously wisdom to those who ask. The better we know God, the more confidently and fruitfully we can pray. So we've seen the need for prayer, the urgency of prayer, the greatness of prayer, and finally, the ultimate prayer. And Moses' prayer here is wonderful, right? He sees the people's unbelief, he sees God's justice, and he, he steps in between, right? He, the, the book of Psalms talks about how Moses stood in the breach. He went to the place of danger and he put his body on the line. He stood between God and the people, He secured God's pardon. It's beautiful. But the passage actually ends in a minor key. And I don't know if you noticed that, but look at verse 21. After God says that he'll pardon, he says, But truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice the land that I swore to give to their fathers. So God's judgment had two parts. He said, I'm going to strike the people with the pestilence. I'm going to end the nation, and I'm going to disinherit them. I'm not going to let them have the land. And Moses prays, and then God pardons them. He doesn't destroy the nation, but he still disinherits them. At least the, the generation that didn't believe, the generation that turned from him, he said, they're not going to enter the land. In fact, he sent them back into the wilderness for 40 years until that whole generation died out. And then their children... That they were, they were so afraid that their children were going to be eaten up by these, the people. He, then God, until the children grow up and God gives the land to them, to the next generation. As wonderful as Moses' intercession was, it didn't take them the whole way in. Moses couldn't secure their inheritance. What could? Only full obedience. Look at verse 24. Who gets to go in? But my servant Caleb... Because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. Caleb and Joshua inherit, because Caleb and Joshua obeyed. So the message of this passage is not, be like Moses. Because Moses couldn't bring the people all the way in. And the message of the passage isn't, be like Caleb. 
Because even though Caleb obeyed fully, he couldn't bring the people all the way in either, right? His, his record was only good for himself. Moses is not the hero, and Caleb is not the hero. This passage points us to someone even greater. Someone who, like Moses, stood in the breach for God's people, but who didn't just turn aside God's justice, but took God's justice in his body, dying and paying the price completely. Someone who, like Caleb, fully followed God, but who, unlike Caleb, is able to share his righteous record with everyone who trusts in him. The hero of this passage, this passage points us to Jesus. Only Jesus can bring us all the way in. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 1 verse 11 that in him, in Jesus, we've obtained an inheritance. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who's the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So we're not standing physically on the border of the promised land. God doesn't have a farm for us somewhere that he's promised us. But we have an inheritance. And our inheritance is eternal life with God. And we don't have the record we need to enter the land. We don't have the record we need to get our inheritance. But Jesus has interceded. He has died in our place. And he offers to anyone who trusts in him his record of perfect obedience. And through trusting in him, and his perfect obedience, we have access to eternal life, to the inheritance of God. And, and not only has Jesus interceded for us, but the Bible says that Jesus is even now interceding for us. Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that Jesus is still standing in the breach for us. He says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So if you have trusted in Jesus, Jesus is, at this moment, standing in the presence of God, interceding for you, praying for you, standing in your place. So Moses' prayer is a good model, right? It's a good prayer to pray, but it's not the ultimate prayer. The ultimate prayer is the prayer Jesus is praying for you in the presence of God right now. And it's the ultimate prayer because his prayer is, enables our prayer. His prayer ensures that we will always be welcome in God's presence, that we will never be turned away, that there will never be a moment from now until eternity when we are not welcome with God, because there will never be a moment from now until eternity when Jesus is not standing in God's presence, making sure that we are welcome, interceding for us. And so when we see unbelief in ourselves, when we see needs in people's lives, we never need to be afraid to pray because Jesus is interceding for us. So for whom do you need to pray? Whose life is not working because they don't fear God most, because they don't trust in Jesus? Who is, who's wavering? Who says they know Jesus, but they're wavering, they're wandering, they're drifting away? Maybe it's you. Maybe you're aware that your heart has been hardening towards God, that you don't love him like you did, that you don't obey him like you did. Don't stay there. See what Jesus has done. See that through trusting him, you're always welcome and go to God. Listen, God has shown himself to be slow to anger and abounding in love. He's given the life of his son so anyone who trusts him can come all the way into life. So let's be quick to pray for ourselves and others and quick to trust that God hears and loves and answers prayer. 
So if it would serve you to pray with someone during singing, you, you already know where to go. If it would serve you to share a request for our prayer vigil, our prayer gathering, you can do that in the back. Please make yourself, please avail yourself of those opportunities. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for Jesus and what he's done. We love this picture of Moses standing in the breach, interceding, but even more we love Jesus standing in the breach, hanging on the cross, taking in himself your justice so that we can have his life and his righteousness and his welcome with you. Father, help us to see our lives clearly. Help us to see where where our faith is weak and we need you to change us. Help us to see where you can work in the people around us and help us to have confidence because of Jesus to come to you again and again. Help us even now to draw near to you in singing. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.